Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tikowski. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tech on Reg. Uh, Today, we are talking about the future of regulation of AI and big data. And honestly, it couldn't come at a better time, given the New York Department of Financial Services recently launched investigations into two companies, two companies that we know very well surrounding algorithmic bias in their AI. First, we've got the investigation into United Healthcare uh, and Optum. And then, of course, we've got the huge, highly tweeted about, talked about, commented on Apple Card, Goldman Sachs. Um, gender bias. Um, I don't know. Uh, maybe we could call it a scandal. Maybe it's not a scandal yet. Maybe it might be a scandal. Uh, but all it took was a few tweets um, to get a regulator's attention. Joining us today, we have Ron Shevlin, the master of snark himself. Ron is the director of research at Cornerstone Advisors, where he heads the firm's strategic research efforts, the Insight Vault Service, and Cornerstone uh, Performance Report a regular uh, writer, a columnist for Forbes, a fintech expert, sought after speaker, all around awesome guy. Welcome to the show, Ron. Thanks, Dara. Thanks a lot for having me. No problem. So we have a lot to talk about. Um, I think when we were were planning this podcast, I'm not sure that NYDFS had done us the very generous favor of giving us very topical content to cover, but it seems like now's as good a time as any to kind of dive into the topic of the hour, which is, again, we're talking about algorithmic bias in AI once again, and now we've got two pretty well-known companies who are kind of at the center of some controversy. We've got United Healthcare and Optum, who's being accused of having risk uh, algorithms that favor white patients over African-American patients. And we've got Apple Card uh, and Goldman giving, you know, husbands more credit than they do their wives. Um, so I'm, where would you like to start, Ron? Uh, well, let's start with Apple, because I know that one better, probably. Um, and, you know, it, it is a mess. There absolutely is a mess. A few days ago, a uh, guy who was actually the founder of Ruby on Rails, uh, tweeted um, a pretty profanity-laced tweet, uh, taking raking Apple over the coals for uh, issuing him an Apple card with something like 20 times the credit limit of his wife. And he just went on and on talking about how sexist Apple was because of this and related his customer service experience when he called in to ask about it basically as he said, he got very nice, you know, polite people, but all they could basically say was it's the algorithm. And finally was actually resolved when they, they upped his wife's credit limit without even getting any more information. Um, this, of course, you know, created a big firestorm. Steve Wozniak actually weighed in with a tweet himself that his credit limit was 10 times that of his wife's. And that sparked a, uh, as you mentioned, uh, a regulatory uh, probe on the part of the New York State uh, Department of, uh, well, whatever the FS stands for, you know that better than I would. Financial services. Financial Financial services. services. So, you know, this just raises not just the question, Dara, of, you know, bias and algorithms, but it raises, I think, a lot, a bunch of other questions. 
um, you know, one of which is, uh, you know, first of all, you know, the guy from Ruby on Rails, I'm not sure that it's well understood that Apple does, Apple Card does not have joint accounts. Uh, you have to, you, if you're going, you and your husband are going to apply for an Apple Card, you're going to apply separately. And it's not clear what information each of those uh, people gave, Wozniak and his wife as well. You know, it's quite possible that the Ruby on Rails guy put his income down as a million dollars because who knows how much he makes and his wife might have said she only makes $50,000 a year. So the fact what? that they, they file joint taxes and live in a community property state, all that it doesn't matter, uh, you know, to the application. Well, I, I'm going to push back on you for just a second, uh, because I do think that at least we don't know the answer to the income question for Wozniak and his wife. I do think, however, that for Hansen, he says that he didn't disclose any income for either himself or his wife. Um, but they did disclose the joint tax returns, common assets, so on and so forth. So it, we don't know for sure, right? Because, you know, no one has seen the applications. But at least according to him, they didn't put in all of the income information, as opposed to Wozniak and his wife who did. So riddle me that. I, I don't know. I think it makes the whole situation even more confusing. But like you said, what's also interesting is that as soon as he got on the phone to complain, the resolution was that, oh, well, we'll just give her more credit, even though she didn't have to supply any additional information. So what does that mean for your credit underwriting process, where you just pick up the phone, complain, and with no additional checks or data, be like, oh, our bad, our bad, here's, here's a little bit more credit. Can you, can you maybe not file a complaint with a regulator right. now? <laughs> Well, too late on that one because I guess apparently the uh, New York State Regulatory Department monitors the Twitter to see who might be complaining about things and, you know, we'll jump on this over a weekend. I mean, this had to have been done uh, Saturday or Sunday uh, when they launched this. So, uh, you know, also raises the question of, is this the way regulatory actions should be taken? you know, seemingly knee-jerk reactions based on a couple of relatively high-profile people tweeting. Uh, now, it's quite possible, of course, that they have already received a, a series of complaints that they're launching this off of. But, you know, it seems to me that if that had been the case, they would have gone public with this long before the, uh, this weekend. While, of course, it might be possible, I think both of us would agree it's likely not probable. Uh, and I think more importantly, the, the fundamental answer should be no, our regulators should not be, you know, jumping at every, at every tweet and at every Twitter storm. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that regulators monitor social media generally to kind of get a sense of, you know, issues that might be out there. But no, a tweet should not launch an investigation into, into a company without anything further, right? Because isolated accounts of consumer complaints historically have never done that. Um, I think it just goes back to kind of how highly politicized these issues are. Um, and NYDFS has never, you know, shied away from a press conference or, you know, a release or, you know, wanting to stake their claim in history by being, you know, some of the most aggressive financial regulators that we have in the country. Um, and I think they saw, I would guess, I would surmise that they saw an opportunity here uh, of an issue that was getting a lot of attention from a lot of high-profile people. 
They may have had a few complaints in the bank, consumer complaints that they always keep track of. And they said, you know what? Here's, here's a nice little moment to shine in the sun. And we're going to, you know, we're going to be the first ones that come out and, you know, stick it to Goldman or stick it to Apple. Uh, and then I also think that they're just, this is just going to be like a nice little play lab for them to do uh, some research on what it is uh, that they ought to be regulating because whatever, whatever laws and rules are on the books right now, nobody has any real insight to. So I don't know. It'll be really interesting to see what comes of the investigation now that they've made such a big deal out of it. Well, I totally agree. I just didn't want to comment on their motivations without really knowing it. So, but I'm glad you did because I totally agree. Well, I mean, you can guess, right? I've, I represent companies before regulators all the time. And oftentimes there's a very kind of systematic and formulaic method by which an investigation comes about, especially one that's going to be announced publicly. It is not uncommon for consumers to complain about financial services products, right? They do it to AGs all over the country 50 million times a day. The CFPB has a whole huge online public complaint portal that anyone can look at and see, you know, what sort of, uh, what sort of issues are being had. But not every single one of those complaints results in the kind of press attention that we're seeing here with NYDFS. So why did this one get attention? because famous people were tweeting about it? Why is that, why is that more important than the complaint launched by you know, some other husband and wife who maybe don't earn as much money but experience the same thing? That would never in a million years have launched, I think, the press uh, and the press that this is. So, I mean, we, can, we, can, we don't know their motivations for certain, but I, I mean, it's, it's a very curious coincidence. Agreed. Very curious indeed. You know, ironically, Dara, your, your uh, reference to the complaints database is interesting because uh, people don't like to talk about it, but there's bias in that database as well. Uh, yes. Skewed towards uh, large institutions, because uh, I think if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, the CFB didn't even accept complaints into that database uh, for smaller institutions. And so, you know, it's interesting that we're going to rely on a biased database to drive regulatory probes into potentially biased databases, which is really a matter, you know, really what we're talking about. And you see, that's another thing I think that- You're getting really that, meta. You're getting really yeah, meta getting on meta. me right now. <laughs> okay, because this is, this is part of the, the, the challenge here. You know, we take this from, you know, uh, bias in algorithms to bias in AI. There is no bias in the AI itself. There can only be bias in the data, which means we've had that bias in the data forever. Um, yes, it, it, we you have. Know, it, it, you know, turn the clocks back, what, 60 years or so, should we have had regulations, you know, uh, limiting the use of COBOL when COBOL came out? You know, think about that. Nobody said, oh, you know, we need regulations to control COBOL. But in effect, the systems that hard-coded a, a lot of, you know, decisions in financial services started 50, 60 years ago. And so it's really the data, you know, the underlying data. It's not about AI itself that needs to be regulated or even can be regulated because it's, it's, an, it's simply the data that feeds it that causes the problem. 
Well, so right, the science of it is fundamentally neutral. It has to be. It's, it's the science. I do think you're absolutely right. The way the data is structured and curated and fed into whatever algorithm that's been programmed absolutely is, is and can be inherently flawed with all sorts of biases. However, I do think that there is something to when you are building the algorithm, depending on what you're building it for, if you're including factors to be considered that ought not to be considered under the law, then there is the potential for actual bias within the algorithm itself. But I think I would hope, right, that anyone who's creating an underwriting algorithm for a financial services company knows not to include gender in their underwriting algorithm. Um, or at least knows not to weight it in an inappropriate way. Uh, but again, I think part of the fundamental problem that Apple had is that when, when customer service can't answer a question about why a decision was made, as opposed to traditionally, I know that you know if I've applied for credit or a loan and you get a result back that you have questions about, I've never really had a problem, you know, contacting whatever financial services provider that I was using and they're saying, well, you know, right here, you, you made it just under the credit score limit here or your income threshold needed to be this much higher in order to get these terms. And we were always able to get answers before. And I think part of the issue is that no one can get any answers right now because customer service representatives don't have insight into the process the way maybe traditionally they had in the past. Um, and that gets people mad and when people get mad, where do they turn? They turn to Twitter. That's, that's what happens when people get mad now. Well, there are a couple of issues that, you, that, that I think you raise here, Dara. First is you, you, you appropriately say that you, know, you hope that whoever's creating the algorithm doesn't include gender. And that's because that's a regulatory requirement to not right. look at that. However, what's interesting is that uh, it was just published today, a story in Finextra um, that some researchers or whoever at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland did some testing and discovered that actually including gender in the algorithm would actually improve women's odds and chances of getting credit and, and you know, in the first place and more credit where, where due. So, you know- Well, we the, can be very responsible with money. Well, the, no, listen, I'm, you're talking to a guy whose wife ma manages all the money in the house. So trust me, I, I know that as a fact. But the point is, is that regulations have been created ostensibly to correct some sort of perceived injustice when you know, this happens time and time again. Our regulators are not mathematicians, statisticians, or even business people. And have you know you know what they are? They're lawyers. Oh, shoot, never mind. Um, so oh, that's I know. A good I thing. under. I we own it. I understand yeah. what I am, and no one knows how to. No one knows how to kill innovation generally better than a lawyer does. I. And, I, and the problem is, is that there are unintended consequences to the regulatory actions, um, and I think this is a good case where um, you know the regulatory action produced a uh, an unintended consequence. The other thing that, that kind of raised here is, it, you know, everyone wants to say that the algorithm is causing this, is causing this injustice. Well, actually, no, it isn't necessarily. Um, the, the algorithm might actually, might actually be working exactly as intended and working perfectly. Um, however, if 
there's an underlying issue with income equality among the genders, then, then, the, then the algorithm doing the credit underwriting is not the, 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 the algorithm at fault. In other words, there's a, a deeper root cause here, which can be income equality. Um, now, if we have income equality and women are making less than men who are doing the same things and all that, then when the, the credit algorithms run, women are going to get lower credit. That's not a problem with the algorithm. It's a problem with some deeper root cause. And I don't think that's getting addressed in this, in this issue as well. Right. There, it's, you know, problems with society that we've been dealing with decades upon decades of, of, of gender inequality and the numbers are such that, you know, women are still making, you know, 19% less than their male counterparts. And that's, that's, that is the data right now. Yeah. But I think what's interesting and what's probably more needed at this point is really additional research and testing um, to understand why the disparate results are occurring the way they are. Because if, for example, you have, uh, you know, uh, David Hansen and his wife, neither of them putting down income information, both of them putting down identical assets, identical tax return information, so on and so forth. What is differentiating them? And if, as Apple and Goldman say, it is not gender because they've come out publicly and made very clear that they do not consider that in their underwriting process for the Apple card, then what is it? We do need to figure out what that is because otherwise it doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. And if you don't understand why your formula is producing a certain result, it is necessary to find that out because while the consequences may be unintended, they are still consequences that have to be dealt with in some way. And it could be a product of you know our general societal income inequality. It could be a question of you know uh, badly structured data that's being fed into the system, um, or there could be an actual problem in the algorithm. I don't think anyone really knows right now, and I think that's what NYDFS aims to find out. Query how they're going to find that out. I certainly hope, I commented on somebody's post on LinkedIn this morning saying, I certainly hope they have the talent to really understand the science behind it, because I don't know how you investigate something properly that you don't understand, but that has certainly never stopped a regulator from doing it before. So I think that all remains to be seen. Yeah, so two quick thoughts to that. First is I want to relate a quick story to you. The only argument I ever won against a lawyer was at Money 2020 a couple years ago. It was a panel discussion, and it was a former regulator from the CFPB, and she was arguing that the CFPB and regulators in general um, were perfectly able to keep up with changes in technology. And I argued against oh, it. Oh, goodness. Based on the, and based on the, <laughs> uh, the uh, audience's response, uh, I claimed victory on that one. And that was the only time I ever won uh, an argument against a lawyer. Mazel. The, second, the second thing I wanted to comment I wanted to make towards what you just said is that this is all, your point is spot on and it's only going to get harder and worse because there is a trend in technology now that, you know, we're, that companies, especially in the financial services space, uh, are building artificial intelligence-based tools and systems and so forth. But for them, to a large extent, they kind of sit apart and alone from the existing core applications and systems. But what's going to happen over the next five to 10 years is that these AI systems won't be systems anymore. They are simply be capabilities 
that will be integral parts of existing applications and systems, whether that's you know core applications or uh, channel-based systems or functional pro you know functional processes uh, that's you know, systems that support you know marketing and so forth and uh, you know the various processes in, in the institution. And so it's going to be very difficult for regulators or or compliance even to kind of tease out what's AI and what's not AI. In, in the in the systems architecture, this is going to become an almost impossible thing to to regulate and 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 to to track and measure as as the technology itself kind of changes. So, what does that mean, really, for the future of regulation of AI? I think that there's a few different ways that this little choose your own adventure can probably go vis-a-vis -vis the regulators. I do think that it is such a hot topic right now and it is very politically driven. I think that there is going to be um, a real concerted effort by the regulators, whether it's New York or California. I doubt anything's going to happen at the federal level at this point, but that's just, that's just my gut. I think if we do see regulation, it'll come out of the States because that's where the action has been. The past, uh, the past few years. And I think they're gonna wanna do something for the sake of doing something. That is, that is kind of my gut reaction to it. Uh, what that is, I'm not really sure because there are laws on the books, right? Already prohibiting uh, discrimination on the basis of gender and race and other protected classes, particularly with regards to access to credit. Um, but I think that they're, I think they're gonna go further and I think that they're going to use these two investigations one in financial services and one in healthcare to really get into it to see where they can kind of flex a little muscle. That that's my sense. Yeah, and I would totally agree with you. But I think the change in the regulatory approach, or not the regulatory approach, but in the um, compliance approach, has to shift from focusing on the input, that is the technology, um, and more on the impact. Now. If you are testing more for the disparate impact, um, then it's the it's the offender's responsibility to figure out what's causing that disparate impact. It's not a regulator; it should not be the regulator's bur burden or onus to go in and have to look at AI or data files or look at an algorithm, which is I don't believe something you can really look at. Right. <laughs> well, you got to test it, right? You got to you got to test lots of scenarios, and I agree. Um, we unless we all want to start paying a whole lot more in state and federal taxes, like there's no funding for the regulatory bodies to have that kind of have that kind of capability, nor nor should they. So it might be an approach that you know other areas of financial services take, like there are other sorts of safe harbors built into laws where you need to be able to demonstrate a certain level of testing and compliance on the front end. Um, because I, I do think that it's unfair because if you've done the testing and if you've done the compliance and you're not trying to create something that's got disparate effects on you know, protected classes and you're trying to do it right, there should be some safe harbors there for companies that are trying to do it right and not do anything in contravention of the law. So, I mean, there's several different approaches that, that they can take, and it'll be interesting to see whether or not it's going to be kind of um, preventative, reactionary, fine-based, and sort of what the, what the checklist of things that companies are going to need to do in the future um, 
but much of it I think will be based on what they discover through these investigations. Yeah. I mean, I think we're all, I think we all may be either pleasantly or unpleasantly surprised, but there's definitely stuff in there that we don't know. Yeah. Hey, so could I bring up one other point about this whole story that, that kind of. Please, that, please. Uh, piqued my interest. You know, uh, there was an article in Bloomberg that pointed to the, um, the regulatory efforts looking into quote, Goldman Sachs's um, algorithm. Now this is the Apple card. Now granted there's a partnership between Apple and Goldman Sachs here, but it's not clear to me at least, or, or to anybody else I read as well, and I'm reading Twitter, so of course nothing's clear, anybody on Twitter, but you know, who's really to blame here? It's interesting that Apple seems to be pointing the finger at Goldman Sachs and the algorithm. But I go back to Apple's advertising, which took pains to say, created by Apple, not a bank. So it seems to me they- Which, which by the way, all of us who are sitting in the industry being like, yeah, okay, Apple, <laughs> whatever, right. whatever, whatever you say. So I looked at that, my first thought was, so DFS, are you gonna look into false advertising claims as well? Because you know what, Apple's claiming that uh, there's no bank involved here, but clearly there is. But you know, the, the, you know, who's to blame here? I mean, I think from a pure regulatory perspective, Goldman Sachs is the one to blame because they have the, uh, the, the charter and the, finan you know, the, the, the financial right. license. But, uh, that you know, given Apple's positioning from an advertising perspective, and now to kind of you know distance themselves from it feels very disingenuous. Well, it, generally something feels disingenuous because it probably is disingenuous. Yeah. Uh, but I think that there is going to be. I have no doubt that there are teams of lawyers on both sides pouring over those very complicated, highly negotiated agreements between those organizations. Uh, scouring through indemnification provisions saying, oh, holy, whatever, who is going to ultimately end up holding the bag for this um, or whether or not uh, they're going to, in the end, stick together. I, again, it's, you're right. Apple did come out and say, this is ours. We created this and not a bank until something went wrong and then like, just kidding, it was totally the bank and it like super wasn't us. Uh, yeah. but, but no, all of those, there are contractual provisions that will govern who ultimately holds responsibility for all of that. Um, but you're not wrong about the false advertising claims and actually that's gonna be an interesting, um, that might be an interesting little tidbit for the FTC to pick up. Yeah. I, think, uh, I think they'd be the ones who'd, who'd be charged with that. Um, but it's not a good look, and it's it's really re it's very hastily reactionary. I think would be the best way I could describe that. Great. So, what do you think? Do you think we're going to end up with new regulations on on AI? No, uh, I, I don't. I, I think they're going to find that. Well, who, who's they? Who's we? At a federal level? No, I don't. I don't think you know, you'll know this better than I would. But I don't think there's enough. Uh, tension right now at the federal level <laughs> to to do something. You know, we'll have states like New York and California kind of leading the way on this because they're just kind of rebellious and reactionary to all these kinds of things anyway. Um, but I, I think outside of that, 
um, I don't think we're going to see a lot of changes. Do you think it might come in 2020 when we may or may not see a change in administration? If we see a change in administration, um, I think everything I just said is off. <laughs> out the window. Uh, out the, out the window. window. We're going to re-record. We're going we're gonna to come back and re-record um, to see a, what is it, November 5th, November 6th. <laughs> um, next year, it'll be, it'll be kind of crazy. Uh, well, thank you so much for, for your time uh, this, uh, this afternoon. I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens with the investigation. Maybe we'll record something to follow up after some big bombshells break. And in the meantime, any other interesting and thought-provoking uh, tweets that we think should launch some regulatory investigation in another state, you know, you and I should just stay on top of that so we can, we can keep recording. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking of just, you know, tweeting a whole bunch of stuff anyway, see if I can generate a, a, a you know, regulatory probe on somebody. I'm kind of jealous that these other guys can do that. Well, um, part of me, part of me like now wants to conduct like a very interesting experiment with my husband and I, like I wasn't going to go get an Apple card. Like I legit was not going to go get an Apple card, but now I'm just kind of curious to see what's going to happen. Yeah. Hey, maybe it was just, it was all marketing ploy, huh? Oh, well, well, you see now, now you've ruined it for me, Ron. You see now I don't want to, I don't want to fall victim to, to the marketing. Um, nah, I'll conduct my own, I'll conduct my own little, uh, regulatory experiment too. Um, especially because, uh, I don't know, my husband, my husband might get a little cranky with me for, uh, willy nilly filling out credit card applications, but we'll see. It's all, it's all for the sake of, it's all for the sake of research. That's Absolutely. what I'll, that's what I'll pin it as. Um, well, thank you so much. Uh, it was a pleasure having you on today and, uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Dara.